Stop asking your buyers to do all the work of scheduling a meeting for you using calendar links. Chronologic AI predicts guests' availability with over 80% accuracy, so you can improve your buyer's experience by allowing them to just click accept on a meeting invite. Chronologic does the work of scheduling the meeting for everyone. Visit chronologic.com forward slash making fun of marketing for your free two-week trial. Hats off to marketers, because holy crap, the type, the, the pressure that they feel, the type of focus that they need to have, both like with their peers, with their boss, but also on the market. The market has been changing drastically over the last 12 months or the last 24 months or the last 36 months. That's been mind-boggling, to be honest. It's almost like what worked last year doesn't work today. I'm Scott Logan, and we're Making Fun of Marketing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Making Fun of Marketing, where we shake our heads at the ridiculous things we still do or are doing and bring on subject matter experts to be able to have a little fun mocking it because we have a solution on the other side. What we have for today is a topic of webinars. They've been around for a long time. And we have the CEO and co-founder of Welcome, Roberto Ortiz, with us. He was originally a product designer for Lockheed Martin, starting at 16. Be interested in hearing what the heck that was all about. Has already sold a company to Yahoo before founding Welcome, and now also lives in Puerto Rico. So thank you, Roberto, for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Scott, thanks for having me. It's funny, when everyone mentions the 16-year-old at Lockheed Martin, it was always like, okay, stop the scroll. But yeah, anyway, thanks for having me. Good to be here. I live and breathe webinars these days, so lots to unpack. So stop the scroll. What are you doing besides sweeping the floors at Lockheed Martin at 16? It's funny you say sweep the floors, actually. So my first job was way before 16, actually at a corner store bodega, sweeping the floors. So going back... I fell in love with tech early on. I walked into school and I saw my computer lab. That was the first time I got hands on a computer. I saved up as much money as I could and bought my first actual computer for my house. I mean, Scott, we're talking AOL days. So this is when you had to raid the neighbor's mail for a CD-ROM. And so one thing led to another and I became obsessed in a very good way around all things web, HTML, design, and that just kicked off my career. And one of my school teachers actually caught wind of this. And Lockheed Martin was just launching an apprenticeship program where they would take folks from the city. I was born and raised in Philly and say, you know what, we're going to take top performing students and give them a shot to come on campus. We'll teach them code and how to work all this different software. And so for me, it was a really easy decision. It was like, I can get out of school and I can make money. Thankfully, I got into the program. It was phenomenal. When I graduated high school, I had to make a decision of do I go to college or do I keep working here? And I was already getting paid at that point. And I said, I'm just going to keep working. And fast forward, I spent, believe it or not, close to a decade at Lockheed Martin. Grew up there, phenomenal people. It was a very different environment from the startup scene that I've been in since then. But it's a wonderful time. And I did everything from graphic design on government proposal work all the way to UX and UI and some of their software. That's really cool. Kind of like a girl's code program, but way before that time. They were early on trying to figure out how do we diversify 
the pipeline? How do we get different minds involved in the problems that we're trying to solve? I was lucky enough to get in. Nice. And everyone's paths kind of zigzag all over the place. So where you are today is co-founder of Welcome. And I know when the pandemic hit, a lot of us marketers thought, man, this would be the time to open up a better digital platform. But essentially, that's what you did, right? That's right. So crazy enough, stop me, Scott, because I can go into storytelling mode way too much. We're going back to 2019. Just had my first kid, my wife and I, we have a little girl. She's three, about to be four soon, pandemic baby. Me and my co-founders got back together again and we said, hey, what do we build? We were working on something in 2019. We got into Y Combinator, moved to the Bay Area. So now me, my wife, my three-month-old little girl, and my 80-pound boxer dog are now crammed into a studio apartment in San Francisco. Okay, that's immediately right there. There's got to be another job out there. No, thank you. <laughs> you know what's crazy about that? Is that we were really feeling pretty settled into Colorado at this point. So you think about the white picket fence and the mountain views and call us crazy. But we went back to San Francisco and we didn't know that we were on the eve of the biggest pandemic that's going to hit the world and destroy our business, actually. So we were in the food tech space serving technology for restaurants. It demolished. So as COVID headlines became more prominent in Q1 of 2020, the seriousness of it started to weigh down. Our customers closed the doors. And we either had to give our investors back their money or pivot. And we kind of took a two-week break out of Y Combinator. We punted demo day to a later date. And we saw COVID dismantling and what we knew was normal work ways we work and accelerating remote work. And we said, let's bet on this wave that destroyed our business. Let's build a surfboard and ride that wave and see where it goes. And we built Welcome. And Welcome was looking at the space of video conferencing with a simple thesis of this could be better. This can be more engaging. This can be more beautiful. This can drive more results for sales and marketing. And let's just focus on that. And that's what we did. That was the birth of Welcome. So when y'all get together and you're in that room and you decide video conferencing, webinars, that type of thing, and you know the solutions that are out there today, and maybe you could rewind because there's fewer at that point in time than there are today. And I've been doing webinars since 2008 when we literally had to call up Avaya or Cisco or whoever our phone provider was. And webinars were huge at the time. I was working at United Health Group and there were lots of changes in healthcare. So we'd get four to 600 people per webinar. We literally had to buy 600 phone lines and had the finance team asking us, how many people do you think are going to register? And if we didn't have enough phone lines, we were getting blasted by the registrants because we had important information from the largest healthcare provider insurance company in the globe. If we overspent too much, the CFO and finance team was saying, why did you spend that much money? And we're like, because the registrants were there, but we had pretty high registration rates and sitting up conference calls and then calling in another line and then switching phones. And it was literally like a circus act to put on a webinar. Now, fast forward 15 years later, it's much easier even at the time that you were putting Welcome together. What was your mindset to say, how can we even do this differently? What are the things we're going to do to do this differently? Yeah, that example of you scrambling, trying to get things lined up is like the AOL CD back in the day, right? It's like technology is not ready just yet. You have to deal with these inconveniences. But as we know, every year gets better, broadband gets faster. 
I mean, the history of webinars, you go back, as soon as the internet was around, there was some form of telecommunication and video being introduced as broadband became more accessible, then video became a first-class citizen. And now we use Zoom for anything from like a FaceTime call to what we're doing here today. So I think for us, when we got in the lab or in the garage at that point, whenever you're looking at a business, you have to ask yourself, how big is that addressable market? And at that point, it was hard to put a finger on because it was growing by the minute because the pandemic was fueling the need of video conference for everything from telemedicine to education to marketing and sales. And so for us, we said we had an anchor to how big is this market before COVID and bank on how big is this market going to be after COVID. But we knew there was going to be tailwinds and there's going to be some headwinds ahead of us. But there was a big enough market, to your point, because it was already a trusted channel for marketing. Webinars have been around forever and they continue to be around because they work on educating your audience, whether it's prospects or customers. You know, we looked at the players in the space and Zoom, of course, the highest market share. And that became the benchmark. And it's like, okay, how can we be better than Zoom to drive engagement, to drive brand, to drive a two-way interaction between speaker and attendee? And how do we inject design as a core principle to make it beautiful, to make it engaging, to make people want to stay? It was very simple. It wasn't like this crazy aha moment outside of seeing a big opportunity to innovate and to bring our background. So we had a lot of background in consumer and video. And we said, let's lean into that. And plus we were in desperation as well. We were in the middle of building a business that got dismantled. And we either were going to hand the money back, back to our investors or go and find a bigger opportunity. And that's what we decided to do. Nice. What were the biggest gaps that you found? Because at the time it was Zoom webinars, which is good, but pretty basic. WebEx, kind of clunky, but enterprise level. Like those were the players that everyone was using. There was GoTo, Join Me, some of those ones that maybe just had a better UI, but same exact like for like functionality. So what did you want to make different? You also had the On24s and the C-Vents Enterprise. And so for us, what we wanted to anchor to is we just spend a ton of time talking to our customers. In fact, before we built Balka, me and my co-founders have been working together for over 10 years. And what we said is before we build a line of code, we want to go sell the idea of welcome to actual customers. What I did is I went and built a prototype, high fidelity, interactive. You wouldn't be able to tell whether it's real or not in Figma. And we shopped that around and we said, we're not going to build a line of code until we get dollars in the door. Cause there's nothing more real than somebody handing you money, especially handing you money for something that hasn't been built yet. After we got our first few paying customers, that was enough for us to go build. Talk about getting customers before you had something to deliver. That is hard to just skip over. Oh my God, that's intense. That would scare the shit out of me, honestly. To be fair, it was about getting money in the door. It wasn't so much about getting the right kind of money in the door. So we weren't trying to get rich off our first few customers. We were trying to prove whether or not somebody's going to take out their checkbook and cut a check. After we had a few of those, we said, okay, the pain is big enough for us to go invest in this. And we never looked back. Going back to the lab, it was more about how do we make it better? And it was really about spending time with our customers to understand their frustrations. And so these other players didn't have the concept of a backstage or a green room. And that was a key thing for us. It was like webinars are live for the most part, and they should be to drive actual engagement. There's so many variables and things that can go wrong when you're doing anything live. 
how do we actually take what happens in analog world? Stage has a backstage, you have a green room, you have places where the speaker preps, you have a space where they get mic'd up. Even on here, right? We're checking like, hey, let me check your sound, let me check yep. your audio, let me check your video. So we said, okay, we have to have that level of utility within this space, but it has to be easy enough that one person can go in, host this experience, be on camera and also manage speakers. And so that was a constraint that we put inside the UX. And I think it's a lot of it's driven because I'm a designer, that's my background. It just needed to embrace design through and through. And this was the thing that we were holding on to as a product team. We said, we are actually taking time from people. We are booking 30 minutes on somebody's calendar, 60 minutes sometimes on somebody's calendar. From a marketing perspective, when else do you have 30 to 60 minutes of uninterrupted time with a prospect, as uninterrupted as it can be, on their calendar, and how do you make that the best experience possible? And we asked ourselves through design, how can we elevate that to make it as engaging as possible? And we all know that telling a story, we can tell a story right now without any visuals and people listen to our podcast, we can paint a picture in their minds, but visuals really tell a beautiful story when they're used correctly. And so we made that a first-class citizen with our product. And so tactically what that means is that inside of Welcome Studio, you can actually bring in HD videos and play that before your customer gets in there and stream HD audio before they get in there. You can bring beautiful overlay presentations on top of the video to make it engaging. You can bring a clickable CTA on stage to make it engaging. So we really ask the question, how do we change the idea of webinars from just being a video feed that goes from person A to person B to make it interactive? And that was a core principle for us. That's awesome. That's exactly what I was looking for, that interactivity. A lot of times the webinar platforms block that or you want to do it, but you're like, oh, well, I didn't make it a Zoom meeting. It's a Zoom webinar and I can't pull people in. Say, hey, chat this in the meantime. And no one chats because everyone's just busy doing whatever. You know, a surprise, you talk about chat and I think so many people underestimate chat. So chat is how we communicate. Like everybody's on Slack every single day, email. Emojis become the way you express yourself and gifts. And so we said, how do we bring that level of Slack-like engagement into Welcome? And so from day one, we had emojis in there. We had GIF integration. We had all the things that you would expect in a modern way of chatting inside of Welcome, where these other platforms, you would have to pick a dropdown to select who you're sending a message to. Good luck finding an emoji tray. And people have come a long ways over the last three years because they had to. But early on, we saw the gap in just making it stand out. I didn't know you had GIF integrations from the beginning. That's awesome. Hiring some younger folks now that I'm 40 plus is I'll get a GIF as a response. And sometimes I'll have to tap my wife on my shoulder who works at the school district and say, this is a good thing or a bad thing. No, that's a good thing. Okay, good. She's like, should I be worried about this response or not? I don't know if the skulls is a bad thing or the skulls is a good thing. Don't use thumbs up. I'm like, oh my God. So I literally wrote a disclaimer one day in my team chat and said, I just learned that thumbs up is a bad thing. If you think that I was saying bad job to something or dismissing you, I was actually saying good job. It's like a year ago I did that. I felt so embarrassed and it wasn't up with the cool kids lingo. Well, on that note, let's bring up our punchline segment where I'll have you finish a phrase of one of three things, and we'll just get going now. Redefine webinars. 
I think webinars is an interactive two-way medium between you, your prospect, and your customers. And to reframe that is it's not just a phone call. You're competing for attention every single second. Nice. So let's move on to the next one. Your favorite new version of a webinar is? Event series. Interesting. I ran a few of those and had tons of registrants, both in the one-day format and a series format. That's interesting. We can dive into that a little bit later. What do you say to people who are still scared to be on video? Just do it. Awesome. So on the new forms of webinars, let's get into that because I want to be able to have the listeners take something home and be able to try something new, try something they haven't thought about, tweak something they've already been doing. So we'll just start with the one you already suggested, event series. Give us some best practices, what you've learned, what you've seen from event series. Kind of taking a step back, a lot of folks are, think about webinars a month, tactically a metric for us as a marketing team is we wanna host one webinar a month. They might think about it that way. It's like, here's my content strategy. We have social media doing all these things. I'm posting social media daily. My CEO has to spend 30 minutes a day engaging on LinkedIn, all these different things, the marketing plan. Then you'll see all the gurus say, host one webinar, two webinars a month. And that's what it becomes. It becomes like a thing to do as opposed to how do I add a value to my audience first? And then second is how do you package it in a way, you know, in B2C, you hear about this all the time. Like in YouTube, it's all about the thumbnail. It's all about the title. And LinkedIn is all about the hook. It's that promise to get people engaged. In an event series, what it does is it allows you to take this opportunity to brand it more than just this one-off thing. It's a journey to invite people on. It might be like a five-part series. It might be a community-focused event series. For Welcome, for instance, we host Open Doors. It's a live monthly community gathering for marketers. It's an event series. It happens the first Thursday of every month. And so we ask ourselves even at Welcome, how do we design for this use case? So when somebody registers one time, how are they just registered for the series of events? Now put in my marketer hat on. Marketing, you want to make sure that people get the notification, they get it on their calendar. If they already like the idea of a monthly gathering, then why do you have to email them every single time so they can register for that upcoming event? Just subscribe to the event series, and now you're going to be part of this thing. And you can always unsubscribe whenever you want. And so event series, I think a lot of people sleep on that, that level of structure, that level of thematic branding to a series of content. And it just does good because it also elevates it from just being this one-off thing to be in a continuation of something that I look forward to the next month or the next quarter. I like that. Treating it kind of like your newsletter or your blog or whatever it is. And then as your topics come out, they're coming in and out of the sessions that they care about. But you also start to build up that following and can use that list and that content to continue a conversation like you would a newsletter list. That's really fascinating. How do you do that when you're doing a series? Is it the same thing? Or do people register and then sleep on it and then forget they ever registered? No, no, no. So you still promote. You still do all your promotion. The point is that somebody doesn't have to register. Half the battle is getting people to the landing page to see if they like this or don't like this and then get them to register. In this model, they know upfront they're registering for a series of events. Here's the upcoming events. Here's the upcoming featured speakers. It just makes sense, but it takes a lot of pre-planning from the marketing team to say, okay, is this a theme one that we care enough about? 
It's just a theme that my audience actually cares about. It's worth us doing six months of this or three months of this. And so it takes a little bit of foresight, conviction, I think, to put it together. But once you have it in place, it becomes much easier for everybody because for your marketing team, now they have a theme. So let's say we're just going to break down the marketing funnel in 2023. That's the theme of the series, the marketing funnel in 2023. And we're going to run that for six months. And we're going to get six different subject matter experts on. And we're going to treat it as a monthly webinar that happens roughly around the same time. Now you can promote all six speakers. You can promote the first three as you lock in the other ones. You can also carry the themes over. And that theme obviously should be aligned to your business. So you can have content to repurpose and to do all the things. And so it takes work, but that's the beauty about webinars is like you can either try to set it and forget it, which doesn't work, or you can invest into it, put some brand behind it and see the fruit on the other side. And it's always going to be work, but this probably sets it far enough out in advance when you frame it and plan it the way you just described where you're not scrambling for a guest four weeks out and trying to come up with a topic four weeks out because you're like, well, what are we talking about this month? I don't know. You hadn't done that pre-work leading into it to be able to create that frame. That's right. And I think a way of thinking about it too for your webinar program is what are the core things that we're always going to talk about? Are we educating? Are we entertaining? Are we doing a little bit of both? Is it primarily top of funnel awareness or is it middle funnel, bottom funnel? Is it focused on customer retention? So therefore, we're throwing event series that are more educational about our product. So there's a lot of different ways to slice that. But I would say like even back to your point about measuring what's working and what's not, sometimes you have to drop everything and go with something that is relevant to the market now, like this quarter. Sometimes we have to scrap it and say, you know what, we're going to go do this thing because it's super timely for us. Yeah. Most of the time I hear, oh, B2C is so much more cutting edge and so much more in tune with the customer. But I feel like webinars is the opposite. You get the 45 minute hook on everything B2C webinar and B2B webinars. Marketers understand we got to have great content up front right away and give something away or we're going to lose not only our pipeline, but potentially some customers because someone else is actually educating them. And the sale is not the book at the end of a 45 minute pitch disguised as a learn this. I think that might be one of the only places where that B2C is behind the B2B piece. That's right. On the B2C world, they see it as a conversion tool primarily. It's I'm gonna set this thing up and that's where people get the pre-recorded webinar, the auto set and forget it, the drip page, the squeeze page to get people to click this thing that's supposed to be live, but it's never live. People are not dumb. They know that the person speaking is not really there. He's not engaging with my comments. I think that that just leaves a bad impression. Okay, switching topics, next medium. What's your opinion of LinkedIn Live? I feel like LinkedIn Live, at least the ones I've joined, have not been engaging enough to keep me interested. I think some people have figured out a way of using it just as an amplification tool. So for instance, in Welcome, we support RTMP out, and so you can Host it inside of Welcome, drive registrations, drive engagement, hook in Salesforce, HubSpot, all the things to make it worthwhile. And then just through an awareness feed, just pump it out real time to these other places. That's the best use case I've seen for it. But I've seen some folks do it in very entertaining ways as well. Do you have one more that we haven't discussed that you'd like to highlight or bring up as far as a new way? 
or a fun way or a better interactive tweak to a traditional webinar, for lack of a better term? Just looking at how our customers use it, there's such a wide variety that webinars are being used for, whether it be to onboard a cohort of customers, whether it be educational. When you think about like Figma, they host webinars for the training folks on how to use all the tools and all the new features versus a more serious player like a Flexport. And they're talking about global logistics and what's happening in that world. So it's a wide spectrum. But I think for folks listening, think about webinars in three different areas, right? You have pre-event, you have during event, and you have post-event. You can sort of take the lazy route and just set and forget it. You think it's a template, but it's really not because it always changes depending on the speaker you have and the topics you're trying to drive. But pre-event, all about promotion, the setup, getting the speaker, getting things lined up. You want your first promotions going out two to three weeks at the latest on your webinar, getting those things going, making it super easy for people to register. And then you have door and event. And the door and event, it's all about going back to your point. How do we load as much quality and content to the front end of that? So you have retention all the way through. And there's a couple of things you can do there. Number one, don't make it boring from the jump make it entertaining. It's funny, Nick Bennett, I just seen post something on LinkedIn about webinars and who was given sort of his breakdown. And one of the things he said was the host, make sure the host is compelling. Make sure the host is excited about this, about the topic, about driving engagement. And they can be on their toes. Things are going to go wrong. Like one of your speakers is going to drop off because their internet sucks. You're going to get somebody engaging in chat and you want to actually drive engagement with chat as opposed to times where you don't. I think that matters. But the Dorn event experience is critical, not just while it's happening, but prepping for it. Dorn event is structured, is meant not just drive engagement, but also thinking about the repurposed content that's coming from that. So your host as a speaker is driving the conversation with that in mind as well. Like, hey, we're going to cover these three pillars of themes so that my team on the other side has content for a month. And then post event is now, how do we bring it all together? How do we send the recording immediately after to people that couldn't attend it? How do we send a clip on social media? Because people saw you posting about this thing on social media for the last month. How do you start sharing the clips of what just happened? Because they missed it. So you can still get the registrations for the on-demand. Because it doesn't stop there. You still got content that could collect registrations post-event. So it becomes evergreen content, really. And so those are the three ways, Scott, that I would think about it in a more structured way. And that post-event content, two things I want to call out. One is that framework as to how you outline that at the very beginning, where you're creating themes every month or every quarter, and then every month, let's just say first week, first Wednesday, or whatever of the month, that is your pillar content. And then your team is excited and puts a lot of passion and heart into that one webinar. Maybe they get disappointed because only 50 people showed up and 150 registrants instead of 500 and 250 or something like that. But don't worry, that is actually going to be the hub for video clips and blogs and social media snippets and whatever it is. You now also don't need as big of a team to be able to do the amount of work it might have taken three or four people, which are two copywriters, a video editor and a social media person to be able to push out. You can use generative AI and video AI to make those first drafts for you. And then that person is worried about promotion and putting it out instead of hours and or days and weeks to create it. And then by then the topic's over. When did you start doing that? And is it out there and released today? I'm going to put you on the spot here. 
it's out there, it's in the wild, our customers are using it, new customers that are signing on are getting access to it. We've been working on it. So Bank Story, one of my co-founders has a huge background in machine learning. We were asking the question of how do we bring value to the market with AI? And that was the wrong question. It was more about like, what problem do we have? And then how does AI make that problem easier? It's a flip on it. Because a lot of folks are just plastering AI on everything right now, just to be part of the conversation. But really it's about what problem are you solving? And how can these new breakthroughs in language models and all this tech and all these integrations actually add value to your team? And in this case, you serve the marketer. Marketer is overwhelmed with all the things. And by the way, Scott, one of the things that I've grown so much more respect for our marketers, since I've been working on Welcome, my background is in product design, but since I've been working with Welcome, I am forced as a CEO to understand the full customer journey and the pains that they're going through and talking to customers all the time. And hats off to marketers because the pressure that they feel, the type of focus that they need to have, both with their peers, with their boss, but also on the market. The market has been changing drastically over the last 12 months or the last 24 months or the last 36 months. That's been mind-boggling, to be honest. It's almost like what worked last year doesn't work today. What worked last quarter may not work next quarter. And so the marketer not only is tired, I think, but is also overwhelmed by all the things. And so when we, as a team, are asking the question, how do we help that user? How do we help the marketer? Because that's who we serve. We saw an immediate alignment between AI to help them get the job done better and faster than ever before. And that's how we include AI into our product. And the way it works is the tech is basically looking for the key magic moments within a webinar, within a conversation. And immediately, not three weeks later, immediately after your webinar ends, you have a library of branded, beautiful and engaging clips that you can use. Every customer that onboards is uploading their brand colors, their logos, event name, all of those things. And so on the other side, you have branded to your company colors, to your company font, to your company logo, clips that have been picked by AI to be the most engaging ones. A title has been already created for that clip based on the conversation. And a caption has already been drafted for you to have a starting base on getting that thing out to the market. And we got it working. We fine-tuned it with a few customers. And it's awesome to see that level. And that delta, again, talk about hype AI versus like applied AI. Applied AI is actually adding value to the end user that you're serving. And in that case, you see the delta because that customer was spending two weeks with a video editor with layers of revisions with trying to find the moment with scrubbing in video editing software, how to find this thing to just being available for you, ready to go. That's the latest. Yeah. I'm second guessing the vendor that I chose before we had this conversation. I've been experimenting with some platforms I have where it takes your transcript of like a sales call and creates a summary email. I've seen that work pretty well. Like zoom info has that. Then I've also taken these podcast interviews and put it into OpenAI. But now my production company, Share Genius, this folks, they now have a whole basically content catalog that just gets generated for me. And I pick and choose what I want to use where, which is really cool. So I think that pressure your vendors to see where they're at and make a move when you can to make sure you get that because you're going to be left behind by folks who can act faster, quicker, and smarter if you don't have that. And on that note, 
roadmap doesn't mean real. A vendor saying that it's on the roadmap doesn't mean that they actually have it or it's actually going to come next quarter. Yeah, I've been on the inside of those meetings and I was like, wait, wasn't that supposed to be delivered? We already have marketing materials for it. They're like, well, but another quarter. So, yeah, there's so much of it out there already right now. And engineering teams are working so hard like yours to be able to get it there. So I agree. There's probably enough out there to just have it now. And if you don't have it now, there's plugin tools you can subscribe to in the meantime to make it work. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. Thanks for spending time with us. What's the one thing that you miss about living in the U.S. and the one thing that you love living in Puerto Rico? This is probably controversial, but that's kind of the point of the show. Okay, so with the miss, I'm not missing it because I'm always there. I'm actually going to be in San Francisco for a couple of weeks. Next, this month from Canada, I'm going to San Francisco for a couple of weeks. But we're always back and forth. But Puerto Rico, so my family's from Puerto Rico, and I grew up coming out here as a kid. So you got to imagine little Rob, five years old, going from Philly to Puerto Rico, this tropical paradise. In my mind, in my memory, it was the most lush, most beautiful, magical place ever. Fast forward, I've always wanted to come out here. The pandemic introduced an opportunity for me to say, we want to like do this on our own, or do we want to be near family? What does it look like? We said, we'll give it three months. It's going on three years. It's great. So yeah, what I love the most of Puerto Rico, the people, the culture, the weather's not bad. Yeah, no winter and not the extreme heat. That's always nice. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us. Where can we find out more of your content and hear more from you and from Welcome? Our website, experiencewelcome.com. These days, I'm pretty more active on LinkedIn. My team is getting on me about getting out there. So you'll see more of me on LinkedIn. So yeah, go there, follow, connect. And my DMs are always open. So I love to connect with folks. That's how we connected. That is exactly how we connected through LinkedIn DMs. If you want more content from Making Fun of Marketing, go ahead and check us out on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I hope you learned something. I hope you're evolving the way you're doing webinars. I hope you're changing the way you use the Hub and Spoke motion for creating content. And we will catch you next time. Thank you again, Roberto. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hopefully this was a bright spot in your day. You can go ahead and listen to more episodes at chronologic.com forward slash podcast and give us a five-star review and subscribe if you just want to hear more and get a bet. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day, everyone.